This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt, and we are not in Chicago. We are here in the gloriously warm and sunny Anaheim, California at the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress, and we're having a blast. We're talking to lots of great folks. We're having wonderful conversations, learning a lot, sharing a lot, and we're about to have another great conversation with Jordan and David. Who is she? Jordan Denary Duffner, and I interviewed you, Jordan, for Things Not Seen a couple of years ago. Yes. You're pursuing a PhD at Georgetown University, and you have published a book called Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. And this grows out of work that you did. I believe that you were a Fulbright scholar Mm -hmm. and were studying in Amman, Jordan. Yes. And so this has been a long-term vocation for you to think about the ways in which Catholics and Muslims can find common ground, can find bridges. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, but also at the end of the conversation, I'd love to talk more about a new project that you're working on with regard to Islamophobia. But welcome to The Francis Effect. Thank you. It's, it's great to be with you both. And so for listeners that don't have the opportunity yet of reading your book, which they absolutely should read, or, or listening to our conversation on Things Not Seen, which they absolutely should listen to, give us a brief kind of four or five sentence introduction to how you got into this work. Sure. So it really grows out of my own experience as a Catholic who met Muslims, got to know Muslims, was studying Islam first a a little bit in high school, you know, reading things, but then studying it in a more concerted way in college and finding that through those relationships and through that study, I was not only growing in appreciation for the beauty of the Islamic tradition, but also my Catholic faith as well. I you know, was in a period when I first started studying Islam where I wasn't really sure I wanted to be Catholic anymore. And then I had this kind of maybe paradoxical thing where I was growing in appreciation of this other tradition, but then also found my Catholic faith enriched too. Let me ask a follow-on question. Am I hearing correctly that in encountering Islam, you were maybe drawn to Islam at one point and then, or you were, or were you sort of drawn out of any faith at all in encountering this? So I grew up in the post 9-11 period. So like Islam was just you know, anywhere and everywhere on our, on our TV screens and things like that. And I was aware that there were a lot of negative perceptions out there about Muslims and had listened to a lot of things and it was, was intrigued about what I had learned. And so, you know, I guess it was just generally seeking at that point, but Islam was just sort of what was there. And that's what I kind of fell into. I never actively thought I would convert, but I kind of wondered, I, I did wonder if, oh, maybe one day down the road, maybe I would. 
but ultimately what happened is I found that I was able to continue making a home in, in the Catholic faith while still deeply appreciating the Muslim tradition. And that's, what been, that's what's been so great about my grad program because I'm able to engage both of those things together. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience of being, you know, a lot of our listeners are in the U.S. context or a North American context more broadly. We have Canadian listeners and others for whom being a minoritized population in a majority cultural context that's very different is unusual. And so studying in Jordan with the name Jordan, that's kind of interesting, (laughs) you know, Um, but I mean, that must've been quite an experience as well, especially as somebody who kind of was reared and socialized in a post 9-11 context. So what was that like? It was wonderful. I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of Americans or people I grew up around don't know is that Christianity has long thrived in the Middle East. People uh, have only recently, I think, started learning about Middle Eastern Christians. I don't think people really think about that they've really been there since the beginning of Christianity. I mean, much longer than Christians have been on this continent. So I felt really welcomed in practicing my Christianity in the Middle East. Jordan as a country specifically really prides itself on its Muslim Christian coexistence. Pope Francis actually came to Jordan while we were there and was really also highlighting that with his, with his trip. One of the things I talk about a lot is the experience of living in a Muslim-majority country and how that contributed to my relationship with God. One of the ways that that happened is through the Islamic call to prayer. So listeners may know that five times a day, Muslims are called to perform prayers that involve physical postures and also recitation of the Quran and things like that. And there's a, you know, a loudspeaker from the mosques that calls people to prayer. It says, you know, Allahu Akbar, God is the most great, and then calls people to come pray. And you know, I, I wasn't, as a Christian, being called to perform that prayer per se, but I was, when I would hear that, called to be grateful, called to remember that God is with me and all those sorts of things. So even as I was, you know, going to Catholic Mass and immersed in the Christianity of, of Jordan, I was also served, I think, by just the religious culture in general and by the presence of Islam there. Well, one of the things, too, I'm reminded of, you're not the only Catholic Christian to be so inspired by the Muslim world. I think of the founder of my own community, of course, St. Francis of Assisi, who, in his own experience in Damietta, Egypt, and his experience among the Muslims, was so impressed, particularly by the devotedness and the call of prayer and Mm -hmm. the, the, the kind of devotion that Muslims had to the observance of their faith, that when he came back to Italy, basically, when he came back to Europe, that affected his own prayer. It affected the rule and way of life for us friars, and it affected the way that he kind of interacted with civil and church leaders and encouraging, as, as you know, the, uh, in, in a letter to all the civil leaders of Europe, he, this kind of open letter, 13th century open letter, where he, he encourages them to do something analogous to the Muslim call for prayer, which is these Christians should be reminded to pray several times a day, and it should come as a unifying sort of thing. So it's, it's really very familiar and heartwarming to me to hear about a kind of modern experience of this. Yeah, well, and I try to tell the story of St. Francis as much as possible to Catholics because people don't know that. They have St. Francis statues in their front yard. I just, I actually just got one. My mom gave me one for Christmas. I have now one in my front yard. I'm like, yes, I, you know, I'm part of the team. I have one now. (laughs) But people don't know that he's not just the patron saint of the environment, but also of, I mean, he really paved the way in Catholic Muslim dialogue 800 years ago. I mean, last year we celebrated the 800th anniversary of this whole encounter. So we have lots of figures in our tradition who have paved the way for us, and it's great. So I want to ask a follow-on on that. And so as a person who knows only the edges of Francis's story, 
and who pays attention on social media, sometimes uh, exactly what you've just said mm -hmm. is, is brought out on Twitter and Facebook. But then there'll be a counter story that, yes, when Francis confronted the sultan, he told the sultan to repent and believe the gospel and to become Christian. There's a very strong notion here in your book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, that that's not your job. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. I mean, and I will say, I think St. Francis probably did go to the Sultan to try to convert him. I think he probably anticipated doing that when he went to, to speak with him. But he found himself transformed by the, the experience of actually meeting someone who is Muslim. And, um, and Dan, you're nodding, and you, you had yeah. some physical reaction when I relayed that story. So I'd love for you to well, unpack that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, Jordan's exactly right. That I mean, there was an earlier attempt, too, of Francis kind of with this fervor of conversion and, and really proselytizing, that was a failed attempt. There were friars who went to Morocco as well. I mean, so there are instances of this. But Jordan's point's exactly right. The, the pro whatever the initial sort of impetus or motivation was, what actually happened is what's most important. And how he was transformed being among his Muslim sisters and brothers and what he brings back to Christianity, brings back to Europe, brings back to the Franciscan order, that's what's most important. The problem is when you have people who, as you alluded in social media, who take this, you know, again, we can't prove it, as Jordan said, quite possible that he would have been motivated because he had an earlier instance that seemed to be much more motivated in conversion and this sort of thing. But when they take that and kind of take it out of, you know, in isolation out of the broader context and say, well, see, this is what we should be following. This is the thing we should focus on is trying to convert non-Christians to Christianity. The problem is that the historical texts themselves, Francis' own writings in the earlier rule, make clear that the way that friars are from his experience onward, meant to interact with non-Christians was not actually to begin with proselytizing, converting, you know, condemning other people's communities, but it was to live as brothers among your sisters and brothers of, you know, he's, in this case we talk about the Muslim world, but he would say non-believers, quote-unquote, you know, non-Christians. And this is what your book, Jordan, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, communicates so beautifully, is exactly that way in which you are communicating how you were transformed in this relational moment. And I think that that's, if listeners get nothing else from our conversation, pick up the book by the book and learn that story because that's a powerful story for anyone living in a post 9-11 world. And I wanna pivot from there because I think that that's a powerful piece into now the new project that you're working on. And that is, there's an entire industry. My friend Todd Green talks about yes. this industry as well that is making its bank on trying to create Muslims as the big bad other. And you and Todd and others are trying from various Christian trajectories to undo that narrative. So tell us a little bit about what got you into that work. Sure. So I spent a number of years working with Georgetown's Bridge Initiative, which studies Islamophobia. You know, so was doing a lot of research on this, this industry and sort of the money making that, that goes along with demonizing Muslims. But one of the things that really troubles me, and this is part of the reason why I want to do a book for Christians and Catholics about this, is that the same things that people say about Muslims today were once said about us. Once said about Jews, once said about you know, lots of other communities that were foreign or recent immigrants or seen as, as some kind of other that should be scapegoated. We put together this quiz when I was at the Bridge Initiative where we took things that have been said about Jews, Catholics, and Muslims at different times in history, took out the, the identifying information, and then said, guess who you think this is said about. And you can't figure it out because the same sorts of stereotypes about, oh, they're going to be more loyal to their religious law than to the U.S. Constitution, all those sorts of it's things. the JFK been, thing, right, of course. Right, exactly, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so I feel like it's important to not only talk about Islamophobia as a 
as a general problem that we as humanity should be concerned about, but also to talk about it from a Christian and Catholic perspective and say, okay, what, through the lens of our faith, how should we be looking at this? And what sort of responsibility do we have to combat religious bigotry, even when it's not targeted at our own community? I love that so much. I, one of the things that Dan and I talk about a lot is that when, when Christians are present, those who are vulnerable should feel more safe and should feel more advocated for, they should feel more solidarity. I think that a lot of Christian communities in this cultural moment are really falling down on that responsibility. They're falling into a trap, a narrative of an easy scapegoat. And I love the history that you just brought in because almost every religious community we can look at that is now sort of acceptable by the status quo was a scapegoated religious community. And so what what can we be doing as laypersons in the Catholic faith to help to change that narrative? I mean, there's so much, but two things I'll mention. First, I think it's uh, being honest with ourselves about our own stereotypes, like learning about what the common stereotypes about Muslims are, and then really interrogating ourselves and saying, am I holding on to these and how might I have bought into these? In the book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, I talk about this experience I had in Jordan where I won't tell the whole story, but I'll get to the punchline, where I I mistook um, a guy who was selling fruit and vegetables out of the the back of his pickup truck for, like, someone who was calling for some kind of, like, violent political revolution. I was hearing this guy yelling in Arabic in the street, and I I didn't know the dialect very well at that time because I, you know, I studied the the formal Arabic but not the local dialect. And so I'm kind of freaked out, and I asked my husband, I'm like, who's that guy out there yelling at, you know, this was during the Arab Spring when there was a lot of turmoil going on in the region. And she said, oh, that's just the guy selling fruit and vegetables out of the back of his truck. But I had never heard, as someone growing up in the States, I'd never heard anyone yelling, a Muslim person yelling in Arabic about something totally innocuous, like bananas and zucchinis and tomatoes and the deals of the day. You know, and that happened at a time when I was already very conscious of the fact that Islamophobia was a problem, that like my community had issues with holding on to stereotypes. And then in that moment, I was sort of just smacked in the face with the underlying biases that I still had, that, you know, Muslims are, you know, angry and just like anything will lead to them doing something violent, you know, all these sorts of things that I think are for many of us so latent that we don't even know that we couldn't, like, we don't always put words around them. So one of the things is to, to interrogate our own biases and be honest with, uh, about, to our, with ourselves about them. So that's one thing. The other thing is actually teaching Catholics our teaching, like from Vatican II. And, you know, I know among many Catholics, even just invoking Vatican II these days, like doesn't actually do anything for them. So that's, kind of a problem. That's like, a problem too. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what to do about that. But but it, it is church teaching, like you say. It's, it's what it is we say we believe. Right. Yeah. And the first line of the paragraph about Muslims in Nostra Aetate, the document on other religions, is the church holds Muslims in high regard, period. We don't start from a place of suspicion. We don't start from a place of even like, well, let me just get to know you and then I'll decide. But it's like, no, these are people who are human beings loved by God, first, first of all. Second of all, we have so many religious similarities with them. And if you get to know them, you're going to find that so much of what our tradition is about is being uplifted by Muslims and is served by the Islamic tradition. So I think part of it's also learning about us and our own teaching. You know, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I'm really fortunate where I'm on faculty at Catholic Theological Union that we have a center for Catholic-Muslim you know, dialogue. And just it's, it's something that's forefront. And we've had a number of students who are Muslim who are alums or current students, which is very exciting because, you know, you, you might ask yourself, well, why is somebody of another religious tradition studying at a Catholic graduate school of theology? And, and part of one of the things that I've 
really appreciated about hearing some of those personal stories has been exactly what you're naming, which is a, a sense when a place is truly Catholic, when it is truly embracing Nostra Aetate and what it is we say we believe, they feel a kinship, a, a welcome, a solidarity, uh, because there is so much in common. I have a question for you, you know, in the spirit of the stereotypes, here's a question I get all the time. And I'm, I'm curious about what you're, because you must get it all the time too. And that is, despite the fact we as, as Christians, as Catholics, understand the notion of the children of Abraham, that yeah. we, we share common text and a, and a common ancestry and a shared monotheism or something like this. I hear from a lot of Catholics who, again, not well catechized, not well educated, but are convicted that Muslims and, and Christians worship, quote, different gods. What's your response? You must hear that. I see you're, so you're shaking your head. I, so, I'm, yeah. I'm speaking on that to, uh, on Sunday in my presentation, awesome. my intro to Islam presentation that I'm giving here. So um, I, I've been writing about that uh, recently. So first of all, I mean, again, I start with the teaching of Vatican II in not just Nostra Aetate, but also in Lumen Gentium, which was the dogmatic constitution on the church, where it affirms that Muslims, along with us, Christians, Catholics, adore the one God who we name as, you know, one, we're monotheists, merciful, and then list some other things. So, I mean, first of all, like, we just have to name that that is already affirmed sort of by Catholic teaching. But I think once you actually get to know Muslims and talk to them about their spiritual life, talk to them about their theology, learn about the fact that while they have a different take on, on some things, they see themselves as coming out of the Jewish and Christian tradition. I mean, the prophets and the figures that are present in the Jewish and Christian traditions are also important for Muslims. They're not saying that, they're not saying that Jews and Christians don't worship the same God we do. They're just saying they're not, they're not living up to what they, they should be. And the thing that I, if Muslims aren't worshiping the same God we are, then I don't know what's going on because I see them living generous lives sacrificing themselves for other people, doing all of... I mean, of course, you're going to have people in every tradition who don't live up to these things, right? But the the people I know who have deep prayer lives, God's working there. Like, it's. I think we also have to... We have to take that information about, you know, what are Muslims telling us about their experience and looking at that. And so for me, that's really important. I, you know, I ask my Muslim friends to pray for me when I have issues and they ask me to pray for them when they have issues. And so there's, a, there's an understanding that like our prayers aren't going to different places, yeah, you know, that's, right. that's some of what I would say. I think that's a, that's a really great answer. And it's, a, it's a very robust answer. You know, you highlight a lot of things. Also, it speaks to Francis of Assisi. I can't not bring him up again. You know, the second part of the earlier rule, which is written this section after his experience in Damiata, Egypt, you know, he says, First, you go and live among non-Christians, Muslims in particular, as sister and brother to them. And then second, as you get to know one another, then you can say, yeah, we believe in the same God. We understand this God as triune, yeah. right? We understand God incarnate in this way. But the starting point is the shared God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. And I'm also, also always very moved by you know, the profound respect for Jesus and for Mary that's not only in, in the Holy Quran, but also within the broader tradition as well. And a lot of our listeners may not know that the same respect that's afforded to the prophet, you know, praise be uh, yeah. to him, is also afforded to Jesus as yeah. well. Right. And so there's, it, it's just beautiful, actually. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're terrible, by and large, Catholic Christians, I think, in our Islam the ignorance, mm-hmm, if, if, mm-hmm. if not full out Islamophobia, in appreciating that, that real relationship. So Yeah, I'll just say I was in a... Um, 
I'm, I'm doing a, a course at Georgetown right now with some other Muslim students, and we were doing the Trinity yesterday in class. We're, we're you know, discussing Basil the Great and um, Gregory of Nazianzus and all, you know, these, these scholars who helped work out for the Christian tradition what the Trinity is, and it was so wonderful to do that in the presence of Muslims, to hear the questions they have, but also to hear them say, why the working out of this language, like what benefits it has. Like they're able to recognize as outsiders, you know, we're not, we're not doing it this way, but I can see why that helps clarify things. Um, and the thing I just come back to over and over again is the traditions themselves, Christianity and Islam, we're all just trying to work out in language experiences that ultimately can't be described, right? Mystery. Mystery. And so, yeah. you know, the doctrine of the Trinity is important. Other, you know, our, our theological and doctrinal differences are important, but if we don't look at them as we have to recognize that they're, they're attempts, right? They're attempts at, at putting words around what ultimately, you know, we can't, we can't describe. Well, that's a great place, I think, to leave it with divine mystery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and Jordan Denary Duffner, thank you for taking time to talk to us. But thank you also for just the work that you've been doing now for these many years in what must be at times a very frustrating mission field. Thank you for that. And thanks for taking a few minutes to talk to us about it today. Thank you. It's great oh. to talk to you. Enjoy Congress for the first time. Thanks. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt, and where here is is not Chicago. Still, we're here in sunny, 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 warm, sunny California at the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress, and we are joined by two wonderful folks in the Catholic media world from Commonweal Magazine. David, who do we have with us? We have Regina Munch and Gabriella Wilkie. Both of them are at Commonweal Magazine. When I try and talk to people about the kind of Catholic that I am, I describe myself first and foremost, as a commonweal Catholic. And so it's part of my DNA to think about the way in which this magazine has, has been a part of Catholic life, particularly progressive Catholic life, for the better part of a century. I don't even know how many years it's been around. 96 this October. Nine, okay, all right. So when but I was... Who's be- counting? <laughs> but who's counting? When I was becoming Catholic, when I, when, when I was in graduate school, I was at my professor's house, and I was sitting on the sofa, and I turned, and sitting on a side table were a couple of issues of Commonweal. And that was my first time picking it up and looking at it and realizing, oh, this is kind of what I want to be. Now, I was a person who was drawn to Commonweal because I, I, it kind of crossed my path. I was in my mid-30s at that time. And so I think maybe that I was one of the younger readers <laughs> of your demographic. But I also know that you have been working hard to try and attract younger readers and even younger than in their 30s. So let's maybe start there. What, what are some of the things that you've been doing to reach new audiences? Oh, that's actually the, the way you described coming to Commonweal is kind of the way that I did as well by coming to it through a professor, through Eugene McCarriher. And, and, and just so listeners know your voice, you are? I'm Regina Munch, assistant yes. editor. Okay. And, and so through Eugene McCarriher. Yeah. So we kind of really value the relationships that we have with educators and professors at uh, different colleges, particularly Catholic colleges. So we have our college subscription program, so any uh, student or recent grad can have a free subscription to Commonweal. But beyond that, we, uh, we've recently redesigned the magazine, so there's been a lot of changes in the, in the production. So now we're a monthly rather than a bi-weekly, kind of have a nice new updated look 
lots of activated white space, as they say. Okay. It's a heftier, heavier, denser, in the yeah. best way. Okay, so, but so also yeah. more attractive. It's very glossy. Yes. It is. Yes. Well, and so, nice paper. So, so I'm understanding. So publishing it less frequently means that it, it can be more and longer articles, yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think we've always prided like the long form journalism to begin with. So we kind of talked about that. Actually, this move seemed to be from a place of strength that this actually going to a monthly better reflects the kind of the, the more rigorous, the kind of critical lens that we would like to bring to how we understand the Catholic Church in the world. So I feel like that the new format really kind of fits with that. Even just like people that I've talked to of like, oh, a month, I even have time to get, actually get to most of the articles yeah. this time around. So I, I think that that's been working for us pretty well in a number of ways. But we've also been looking at other ways to engage others too, and including in the last, is it like year and a few months now, we've had the Commonwealth podcast, uh, so which has been great, which you're also familiar yeah, with, David. Full, full, full <laughs> yes. disclosure, I, I help out with the Commonwealth podcast. But one of the things that I can say having worked with the staff of Commonweal to try and get the podcast off the ground. And I, I wasn't part of the redesign conversation, but I'm imagining that this was also true for the redesign. It was a whole staff endeavor. It was the entire staff asking themselves kind of what Commonweal means to them, what they think the message is, who they think the audience is. And that really, I, I was so impressed by that process. But I'm wondering, having seen it as an outsider, what was it like as insiders to the staff for the two of you to be going through this process, both of kind of launching the podcast, but also the redesign? And I guess, Gabriella, let me start with you. Yeah, I, f I feel like I came kind of at it at a later stage just because the work that I touched often is how it present how we present Commonweal to the world. So it's a lot of like social media, um, but also includes the release and then gathering the feedback to our new uh, forms of the magazine. So I feel like what was actually really cool about this process of doing the redesign was that it, it what because it had to be all on board. That meant like everybody's feedback, even like someone who's like me, who's not traditionally like an editor or making editorial decisions that allowed kind of a space for some of my feedback to come in, as well as other people I would always consider maybe like on the junior staff where we were all kind of invited to contribute because because we are the audience, right? <laughs> like, yeah. As, but, as also younger. How, how about you, Regina? Absolutely. It's been really fun to sit together and think about all the people we really want to talk to that maybe it, we couldn't get them to write for us, but we could get them on the podcast and talk to them about what we care about. So it's really, it's been fed by what we're interested in on this, as staff members. And like, we all have pretty diverse interests, but they kind of come together in our list of guests yes. in a really cool way. And so. I always feel like also with the podcast, because it's kind of a listener experience and we're still feeling our way of what's what feels good and everything, it's also been a place to take risks, yeah. um, which I think has been really exciting also just for a magazine that's been around for as long as we have to, to kind of have that space to, to try new things, see what kind of takes hold find out you know kind of through that trial and error process like mm -hmm. i think that the format of a podcast is pretty forgiving in that in that respect yeah one of the things too i've noticed we haven't really talked too much about yet is is the wheel right <laughs> yeah. so talk about that that's that's something i know that's that's very active in the chicago area particularly it's hosted or has been hosted at ctu what is that for our listeners particularly our younger listeners yeah um, definitely so the the wheel is our kind of young community for kind of young catholics or students kind of looking for a, a place or a community to kind of come together to talk about ideas and how that kind of applies to your faith. So we have a, a couple of real life wheels. Like we have kind of a, our, our network 
online, which receives kind of a newsletter and some stuff from us. But in, in person, we have a community meeting in New York, Chicago, and D.C. And so that's kind of been an opportunity for people to come together, discuss things. Like I, I always kind of pitch it as a if, if you kind of miss your classroom discussion as kind of someone navigating the world, maybe not exactly as like in your undergraduate classroom anymore, this is kind of a space to kind of like meet like-minded folks who are also interested in those tough questions. And if you're not in one of those areas, you should subscribe to the, uh, the Wheel newsletter. It's yes. full of good recommendations, both from Commonweal and outside in Catholic media. Well, I, I describe myself as a Commonweal Catholic, and you just said it's a place to go and meet like-minded Catholics. So if you could take two or three sentences and sort of sum up what the ethos of Commonweal is for maybe each of you. That might be an interesting thing to do. And it might be an impossible exercise, but let's give it a try. Right, yeah, yeah. Give it so, a try. Uh, Regina, why don't you start? Commonweal is a group of, of people who are interested in engaging with the world and tending liberal, left-leaning, but interested in giving ideas, fair assessments, and thinking through what it means to be a Christian in the modern United States. And Gabriella, how about you? Yeah, for me, I've always been taken with Commonwealth seems to be uh, the, the platform for lay voices. And so and a venue to empower the lady to, co- to come together to discuss ideas that may have been perceived as like not something that we can wade into. But um, so kind of coming with that respect of like being able to engage critically with ideas that are happening in the church, that are happening kind of in our public discourse and being able to come at them as, you know, as the broadly lay term, as laymen to, to all of that. Yeah. And so there, there are publications that are official publications of diocese or, or, or of official orders of the church. Commonweal is independent in that sense. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. so what's the hope, what's the possibility there in independence that is vital for and needed in Catholic discourse in 2020? Well, I would say that independence is really important in terms of having the freedom to make strong, sometimes even controversial positions. I think we are very grateful for that every day that we're at work that in a way that other publications might be pressured by an order or by their local diocese to not publish or to veer to something that's safer. I think that having the freedom to just come out and say, um, uh, I think that's been pretty empowering for all of us at Commonweal. Or even make the, the explore a topic that maybe we wouldn't be able to otherwise. I just went to uh, Brian Massingale's presentation and he talked about courage and one of the uh, is intellectual courage and being able to reassess and reevaluate things that you take as certain. Uh, and I think that's, that's a good description of Commonweal. That's a really great example. I was also thinking too, you know, the importance. I'm somebody who is a member of religious communities, mm-hmm. as you could tell from my very fashionable outfit. <laughs> but I also am a columnist for National Catholic Reporter, which is another independent, you know, Catholic publication. And the kind of investigative work that NCR does, which is kind of, again, I think of NCR as more of like the Catholic New York Times, where Commonweal is the Catholic Atlantic, <laughs> you know, where it's a monthly magazine, it's a, it's a longer form journalism. And the importance for the church of that empowerment of the laity, the broadest sort of incorporation of voices, and the really intellectually engaging, challenging pieces that are published there is is such a gift and such an, a challenge for the church. So I, I'm certainly grateful for the work that you all do at Commonweal and encourage our listeners, you know, to subscribe for sure. But there are also things that, you know, whether through social media and other things, there's there's constant, you don't have to wait till the next month. There's always stuff coming out. Exactly. Especially like now that we have our podcast that comes out 
twice a month. So uh, that, it, plenty of ways to connect at kind of the level that you're interested in. Not, not able to do a $10 subscription yet? All right, well, we can meet you with free content. <laughs> other How does free sound to you? Yes. <laughs> so I want to make sure that listeners have a sense of the scope of this. So there's the physical magazine that right. gets printed. Monthly. There's, there's the podcast that is twice a month. You also have, if you were in certain geographic areas, the possibility of getting involved in a reading group or the wheel. Okay, so those are possibilities. But you also do live events at various places. The Common Wheel conversations. conversations. Yeah, and those... Those conversations bring together some of the luminaries of, of the cultural moment to have important conversations, sometimes important disagreements around these, these kind of illuminary moments that we're having. And, and so, so there's a lot of opportunities for people to get involved. If they want to find out more, where should they go first to find out more? I would say they should check out our website, which is Commonweal, which is spelled weird in that it's common as you know it, and then W-E-A-L and then magazine.org, since we are a nonprofit. (laughs) (laughs) And you can subscribe to the newsletter right there as well. Yep. Um. Excellent. Well, Regina, Gabriella, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us about your work. I know that you've been part of the conference before, the Congress before, to some capacity. Regina, have you been here before? Uh, just last year. Just last here. year. And yeah. Gabriella, have you been here before? I, this is my first time. Okay. Oh, wow. So <laughs> let, let's finish by kind of asking about your experience at the at the Congress. So, Gabriella, your first time here, What what is it like for you? Yeah, I, I've been kind of really kind of taking this all in. I, I was warned about the scope of LA Congress. It's a huge space. What we were just talking about, it's like a complex of different buildings that you're kind of walking between. But I feel like I would describe just based on like things I've overheard, um, as well as like connecting with other people I've known here at the conference. It feels like kind of a giant Catholic reunion that's yeah. happening here, which is kind of exciting. And it brings that same kind of energy as a reunion. Like it's, it's pretty joyful. People are excited to be here. There's a lot of energy around going to the session. So so there's a lot. I don't know. There's. It, I've been really impressed so far. There's a lot of excitement about being Catholic, which is something sometimes we need <laughs> to see other people being excited too. Uh, so this is been really last year it was refreshing for me and it has been this year as well well regina munch gabriella wilkie thank you both so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us and i look thank forward you. to seeing you at the next time that i'm in new york yeah <laughs> thank you thank you both. thank you Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We are at the Anaheim Convention Center at the L.A. Religious Education Congress, and we are speaking right now with David Haas. Yes, the one and only, my dear friend, liturgical composer, author, presenter. We don't have enough time to go yeah. through all the things that you are, Male David. model. Male model. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. All the above, all the above. It's, it's a real joy, and we're grateful to have Thank you, you here. You know, one of the special things about L.A. Congress, of course, is that it brings together everybody in the Catholic world, and it's kind of a who's who. You have... The liturgical composers, such as yourself, Ricky Manalo, Tony Alonso, Marty Hagen, uh, Michael Jonkis, you know, the whole gang. And one of my favorite things about Congress is the liturgies. And the liturgies, as I like to tell folks who have never been here, think of the best music 
you've ever heard at a worship, a Sunday worship, maybe it's a parish mission or something like that, and then replace all the people who are doing that with the, the composers who wrote the songs themselves yeah. and get John Flaherty in there to conduct everything. Yes. And it just, there's nothing to compare to it. It is very unique. What I love about this, con- people who've never been or who are coming for the first time, I always say to them, what I love about this conference is it's the church in microcosm, meaning it's quite remarkable to me over the years that you have far, using strange, stereotypical words, but far left, far right, everything in between, every spirituality you can imagine, you know, con- again, conservative, liberal, whatever, and then you talk about all the cultural diversity. It's all here, Native Americans, Hispanic, Filipino, African American, and it's, and it's like it's all in one place for four days, and yet all this diversity and all these different theologies and so everyone gets along yeah more than just gets along it, it really is one of those unique it's one of those unique manifestations of what we hope for in the church which is unfortunately and sadly not always realized that the factions and the and the divisions that we we experience and here you almost wish that every catholic could experience this once in their life because it is possible and there's and the other and the other part which is sort of the umbrella over that. It's just a lot of joy. Yeah. Because morale in, in the church and in church ministry, in circles I walk, you know, it's, it's kind of low. Cause, I mean, part of it is because of the abuse scandals and things that have happened in recent years and people's discouragement. And here, it's just sort of like there's like a renewal that happens. It's almost like the RCIA and <laughs> coming to life. So I don't know. That's one of the things. And the music that you're talking about, the liturgical diversity and the music and all that is sort of a voicing of that. Yeah. It's just remarkable. B- beyond the fact that everyone participates and sings, that's part of it. But well, they're not just the other thing. Well, yeah. But it's not just the volume. No, but there that, is that. That's cool. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it's because it's just, they're just doing it because it's it's like like the hymn. How can I keep from singing? They just it's just they're compelled to it. And so it's a be- it's a wonderful shot in the arm retreat. And again, like you said, everybody's here, and you get some of that juice on you from those other people. You know, <laughs> you just, yeah. Well, I mean, there's this kind of collective. You feel the spirit alive, moving around. Yes. You know, I remember. So, so David Dalt uh, last year was his first year to Congress. It was the first year we were, you know, trying this uh, Francis Effect podcast on the road. And I kept telling him in advance, and I told him last year at Congress. Wait until the Sunday closing liturgy. Wait until the Sunday closing liturgy. I mean, and what was your experience of that? Did, did I oversell it? No, you didn't. And I, I, you and I had the opportunity to sit next to one another. And I think it was the, the first 45 seconds of the procession. And I turned to you and I had tears in my eyes. And I was like, I'm going to weep now. <laughs> and I did. And I, and I, Very cathartic. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, cathartic is such a good word because in the Beatitudes... Blessed are the pure of heart. I've been thinking a lot about that particular verse because the Greek there is the same root from which we get the word catharsis. So it's not just blessed are the pure in heart as some kind of state, but instead blessed are those who've gone through this kind of moment that I was going through there in, in that worship. And it, It's a purification. I needed it. Yeah. I really did. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and, and not just to make this a, a fanboy appreciation fest, <laughs> but, I mean, David's mention of the Beatitudes. I mean, one of your most famous hymns is Blessed Are They, and mm. uh, it never gets old. And I, it's got me thinking about, we could go through all the greatest David Haas hits, and, and I've shared with you, quote-unquote, off-air. I mean, we had the great opportunity this past June to work together and present together in San Antonio at right. Ron Rollheiser's conference at the Oblate School of Theology. 
And I have to say for, for listeners, you, you can go onto the Oblate School's uh, website or YouTube and watch some of the talks, David's and, and mine respectively. But on the last night, I felt so incredibly honored by David's willingness to perform and lead the community in what I think is my favorite of your, your many beautiful hymns, and that's You Are the Presence. Yeah, you do like it. And that's the one that, that usually isn't among the top five or six. I know, but I, I know. It's, it's a wonderful... It was, it was that cathartic, blessed are they, that, that David was talking about. And, and the last night I was talking about Holy Spirit, right? It was about pneumatology. And for me, David, that song is... is so, including the accompaniment, I mean, the piano score is is so, it just rolls like the spirit Did is Did I flowing. ever tell you the origins of the song? I remember in, in Glory Day, you talked about the volcano. It was in, when I was, my first visit to Hawaii at this conference that they, I've been going to for many years, it was on the big island, and the last night there, two hours before I went to the airport in Hilo, which is near Kilauea, the, it burst. I mean, the, wow. the, and so we went to this place and we could see it just that geyser of fire and you know and just it was and i was just so stunned and then what happened was then we went to the airport and then the pilot flew us close by and the words came first the poem came first but then i kept thinking because i did all this all this uh it was the you know the lava doing its stuff and so what happened was it was very Teilhard de Chardin or very Franciscan actually. Yeah, yeah. Because it's all these, it's Trinitarian yes. presence, but that's the spirit. I started with the spirit, which is, no, no, I'm sorry. I started with the, the, the Godhead. Yeah. You are the presence. And then the second verse, you are the healing. That's Jesus. Yeah. And then you are the thunder, power and voice of the just. The last verse, that's the spirit. And yet, as I was writing it, I wasn't thinking Trinity. This is what was so freaky about it. I wasn't thinking Trinity, but that's how it kind of came out. And then, but, but the music was meant to word, do word painting, like, you, you know, you know uh, with that energy. Because I just never saw anything that fierce before. And it's a wonder of the world. You it, know? it comes through so strongly. I cannot recommend highly enough. And it's available, I'm sure, on iTunes and wherever yes. people get, get music and get it from GIA.com or GIAmusic.com. But the, the live concert that you did with, with a number of other great composers and friends um, called Glory Day, it's a t- kind of a two-parter. It's that live version that, that I listen to on a regular basis. And you feel in there, I mean, your, your colleagues too. I mean, you have the piano that is, in my mind, again, this kind of pneumatological rhythm. Yeah. And you can feel the kind of pulsing. And then there's the way I've often thought about, you know, in terms of music, jazz is one of the greatest signs of the Holy Spirit. Where Boy. people anticipate and pick up and let go, and, and, and you, you don't plan the music, you know, that you stay within a kind of space that everybody knows. It's a framework, but it's um, improvisation. It's totally improv, and that's the spirit guiding. And so, you know, there's the, you are the thunder, power, and voice of the just, that, that one part there, at least as it was performed. And even as you played it for us in San Antonio in, in June, there's an emphasis where it reminds me that the spirit is always present, you know, this kind of flowing sense. But like those explosions of the volcano, God manifests God's right. self sometimes in unexpected ways. Well, and it's always there, but it doesn't always reveal itself. I was, I was about exactly. to say, every solid thing that we are standing on is floating on that at all times. It's like when people say, you know, that the sun isn't out today. No, it's out. We just can't see it. <laughs> that's it's right. It's not showing its face. And that's the same thing with that. Because you walk, when you go to the crater or you go to some what they call the lava tubes, you can feel the heat. Wow. When you walk through some of those places in Hawaii. So it's there. You just don't see it. But then... That night, it just—it was—it was like you say—it was just this 
talk, improvisational moment where Pele yeah. decided to show up. Wow. <laughs> I mean, to, you know, to become known. So, I, and, and that's, that's the spiritual life. Yes, yes. Well, well if, if I may, because we have so much. I could talk about You Are the Presence for five hours. And, and uh, other David here, David Dalton, probably doesn't want to hear about that. But there's so many other things I'd love to touch on, David, sure. while we've got you here. You know, number one, you have, uh, you're the author of several books. So not only these amazing and classical and timeless hymns and mass settings and, and, and other pieces, liturgical music, but you also are a prose author and a poet in many ways. Your most recent book is on the Franciscan tradition, Franciscan prayer, Franciscan spirituality. And, and I've had the, the, the great privilege of reading it in advance, and you very generously invited me to, to write a foreword. So I'm a, I'm a little bit biased. I think very highly sure. of it. And it's published by uh, Clear, Clear Faith, Faith Publishing, um, by it, who it's, it's a, a publishing house that's run by our, our mutual friend, Jim Nipper. It's a great, great uh, publishing house. Can you tell us about the origins of this new book? Tell us about it. And Well, part of what's happened in the last, I mean, I've always loved Francis when I was a young boy, I the Capuchins were just down the street. Saginaw, Michigan is my home diocese. Oh, yeah. It was not a Capuchin parish, but they were close by at a retreat center. And I just always had this love of Francis. And in recent years, I've been, you know, in my own spiritual direction, just not rediscovered Francis, but sort of started to dig deeper. Yeah. And that's what it was. So there's two, there's two projects. The one with Clear Faith, which is I do an essay in there where I break open the prayer of St. Francis, which we know he did not actually write. But I think as you said this in your foreword, that he's the spiritual parent of the, of the prayer, you know. And then I did like a, a seven-day daily office, yeah. you know, of it. And so it was just um, one of the things that I think is really important for people. It's one thing to admire saints and have devotions to saints, but we need to find spiritual practices that we, and so that was kind of the intent of the book, too, to try to introduce you know, some spiritual practices with, with Franciscan spirituality. Then I did a music project. That's sort of, it's sort of like the first cousin of it with GIA, this, this collection of music called Take Nothing for the Journey. And the piece that I wrote when we were down in San Antonio is on it, by is the way. It? Oh. i got to get a copy over to you. Oh, yes. Yeah, what I was going to say, you also did something last year, a set again of, of Franciscan kind of meditations. Was it the Franciscan Rosary? I did, I, yeah. I did a rosary where the mysteries are based on the, uh, some of the charisms of Francis and Claire. Yeah. yeah, it's called My God and My All. That's right. Yeah. And I want to say, too, you, know, you, you, spoke, you, you did a, what I like to call Franciscan myth-busting, which is spot on. Yeah, Francis of Assisi didn't write the so-called prayer of St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, though it, you're, you're 100% correct, and you say this in the book really captures the spirit of him. But you, one of, another one of your songs, again, this is turning into fanboy fest, so David Dalton, I'm sorry about this. You know, you did compose a very beautiful song that is an authentic prayer of St. Francis, Most High, Glorious God, Enlighten the Darkness of My Heart. Or before the, the, the cross. Exactly. Yeah, San, Damiano, San Damiano, yeah. And that's actually one of the earliest Franciscan prayers that we have. It's the prayer before the San Damiano cross. And if I recall correctly, I think you might have dedicated that piece to our mutual friend Lisa Biedenbach, uh, another Franciscan hearted. Because that Glory Day concert that you referred to was her idea. Yeah, when out. she was working when she was working for what was then St. Anthony Messenger, but now Franciscan Media, and her, she and Greg Friedman, yeah, you know, oh, Greg, of who course. came up with this idea of doing this live production, and so I, I thought I gotta figure out. A, I wanted to start something with honoring the charism of the Franciscans, and and yeah, I mean I. I dug deep to try to find where that started. Well, it, it's interesting because, and I, I think you would affirm this, that Francis didn't actually write 
down a lot of things. That's right. Yeah. I mean, from what I, I mean, where Claire was more prolific in some ways, and, and Bonaventure and others who followed, but this is one of those prayers that is pretty authentic, you know. And it's yeah, it's true. When, when we look to the 13th century, I mean, we only have uh, kind of a handful, a couple dozen of of texts that are authentic to Francis. And you're right. You know, a lot of it would have been um, written by scribes or that sort of thing. And, and Claire's Latin is a thousand times better than Francis's. She was what? a noble woman. She was she was so bright. Francis was no dummy himself, but, but he didn't. But he didn't like books. No, telling people don't write books, don't I read know. books. And here we are, write, we write books about exactly. Them. <laughs> I know he's rolling around in a CZ, rolling in <laughs> yeah, his grave. Yeah, yeah. If I can highlight just two more things, you know, one is last summer. It was around the same time where we were at this conference in San Antonio. You had just shared a, a piece uh, that kind of went viral for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And I know another guest on, on our podcast here at LA is our mutual friend, Jim Martin, Father James Martin. Just met with him this morning. Oh, did yeah, you? Yeah. yeah, part of the meetings. And I know that, that you're going to be part of the conference that yes. he talked about earlier. Very excited about that. Yeah, and, and can you say anything about the piece and the sharing of it and your well, insp- inspiration? I have a lot of friends who work do a lot of ministry with the LGBT community. And then, of course, I have a lot of gay and lesbian friends and whatever. And when Pride Month rolled around, I was just sitting, gee, I, I mean, literally, this little refrain I wrote, I wrote it in about 10 minutes. It was nothing. I didn't think anything that it was anything that incredible, but I just a little gift that I wanted to give to these people. And so I posted it on Facebook and, you know, did a little short little recording of the And it's Psalm 139. You know, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, that whole, that wonderful sense about that. And, and so it, it went viral, equally positive and equally negative. <clears throat> I mean, I got attacked pretty strongly for it. And, you know, and I've been... That's not new to me. I mean, I, I'm always been a controversial character, I guess. Which, certain, which, which is hilarious to me. I mean, it's like, how could you be so Well, Well, what was interesting know? about that, because when, when some of the negativity came about that, they said, well, what are you trying to say in this song? And I said, that we're wonderfully made. <laughs> it's not, it's not, this is not, these are not my words. This is Psalm 139, you know, I mean, whatever. But it was very interesting how people, well, it just triggered a lot of stuff. Yeah. But I'm excited to be working with Jim on this conference. It's sort of like the first of its kind, I think. And it's going to be in um, June at Fordham University in New York. And uh, he's asked me to be the, you know, the liturgist, and along with Meredith Augusta. Do you know Meredith? Oh, do I ever? I mean, she works, at, you know, at St. Francis of Assisi oh, Parish, sure. our, our parish in Manhattan. So we're working on it together with oh, him, and we're planning the the morning and evening prayers and the closing Eucharist. And I'm doing a concert too. Oh, that's good. Whatever, be and I'm very much looking forward to that. It's oh. very exciting, and it's just it's high time. It's high time, you know, Amen. that we do that. Amen, yeah. brother. Thank you for doing that. If, if we can just close out, because you've been so generous with your time, and actually because of some scheduling snafus earlier, you were very, very gracious to give us a little bit of buffer, buffer zone. But I've got two questions for you. Sure. More fun questions, I think. So I've shared with you personally, and now again on, on the air here, that by far my favorite of your compositions is You Are the Presence. What is David Haas's favorite David Haas song? You no, know, it's interesting, because... I often, when people ask me that question, which is a lot, yeah. I'll say, what's your favorite? And they'll tell me, then that's my favorite. Because it, the vocation of a liturgical composer is not to write music for ourselves. It's to write music for the community. However, there are two or three that are really close to my heart. And, and you know, people say, you know, blessed are they, you are mine. I do love those pieces. I mean, because of just how much joy, and we are called. I mean, the, there's five pieces that are sort of, sort of the most well-known, you know, you are mine, blessed are they, we are called, a piece called We Have Been Told, and Now We Remain. Those five pieces are sort of the classics or whatever. But 
I have a setting of the Magnificat, which I really like. Oh, yeah. Which is sort of the, I call it the Rocket Man, uh, Elton John version, because the verses sound very much like, and I think it's going to be a long, long time. And it says, my soul rejoices in my God. You know, it, it, it's yeah. the same. And then I wrote a psalm setting of 116 called The Name of God. Oh. I will take the cup of life. Yeah. I will call God's name all, all my days. Yeah. Dun, 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 yeah. Dun, That's dun, always dun, been. Dun. So there are a couple that are special to me. If I'm sorry to interrupt. That, oh. that, that psalm uh, was actually the psalm we used at my ordination. That my setting? Class yeah, that setting. Oh, my it's, goodness. Oh, I'm not going to cry. I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 oh I, I absolutely love it. And, yeah. um, and part of it, it's, it's, it's simplicity. I mean, it's in. It's in common time. It's just this simple dun dun yeah. dun. Yeah, have a heartbeat dun, kind of. It does. Into it. Yeah. yeah, and you know, and the the verses dun 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 And then playing on the piano again. It's 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 well. All right, now I'm nerding out too much. All you there out there in podcast radio land, you need to know that that Dan is a very fine pianist. You need to know this. So one of your podcasts. Now I'm gonna cry. No, so one of your podcasts, you need to do a little recital for the folks. Oh, jeez. Well, they did. If you look on YouTube, I there are are some recordings of me playing some of your stuff and so, sure. so well i'll come this. to chicago i'll come to ctu and we'll do you'll play and i'll sing that would be a dream yeah that would we'll be a dream totally. i will say you know in addition to you know you, you listed a bunch of, of of your favorites and the kind of classics you know i think it's massive light right was that the glory on the massive light is one of the most notoriously difficult accompaniments and i am proud to say play that I, I well i used to now with the kind of the new translation and everything and, and now that I've been ordained I don't get the opportunity very often well, but it's it so d- fun it to doesn't play. work with the new translation it's a bit tricky I, I almost didn't do it because it's so because what makes that refrain work is that sing glory to that's the moment and of course that had to go away yeah and um and, so, and it's awkward you know because you're, what you're doing is you're jamming words into an already and that's like co- composers that's like the mortal sin of composing you don't shove words to, to, into a to already existing, to, but we had to do it. We had, we had to, to do, do it, it for it, all those mass settings, yeah. Exactly, and in the second verse, you have basically two more lines that weren't there in the original, and so, yeah. but anyways, I, I love that. So tremendously respect your work, and I'm so grateful for your ministry to the church and to the world, and to our listeners, I hope you've appreciated hearing I guess we could say quite literally that David, you are the voice. Oh, bless your heart! Behind bless the music heart. that we sing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, every Sunday. And if people want to stay in touch with uh, what I'm up to, I have a website. It's it's basically davidhaas.us. And from there, folks, you can you can learn more about Clear Faith Publishing, GIA Music, and where uh, sure. David is leading, uh, pr- performing concerts and leading workshops and so forth. David, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, Thank you Grateful so much. and honored to call you both. friend. Thanks for being of here. Of course. All right. God bless. Pace bene. Pace bene. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt, and we are in Anaheim in the wonderful Anaheim Convention Center. I don't know if wonderful is the right word. It is full of something, and that is about 40,000 people for the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. And we have been talking with friends. Uh, we've been talking with writers, speakers, professors, musicians, artists, all sorts of great people. And we have one of the greatest with us, oh Father Brian Massengale of Fordham <laughs> University. He's back. You were so gracious to be with us and spent a lot of time last year. So thank you for coming back and not running away screaming when we invited <laughs> you to come back. For our listeners, if, if you don't know, Father Brian is tremendous in all sorts of areas. In addition to his scholarly work, being a professor of theological ethics, 
currently at Fordham University, previously at Marquette University. He's the author of Catholic Church and Racial Justice. Racial Justice and the Catholic Church. Oh, I got it backwards. Yeah. (laughs) So Racial Justice and the Catholic Church, uh, my Orbis books, uh, 2010, I think it is. Mm -hmm. I've cited it so much, I know it by memory. Whoa. Uh, You should get it. I'm impressed. (laughs) I do this with, it's all the research I do for all of our guests. Oh, so I'm not special. (laughs) (laughs) He is presenting and is a regular staple here at LA Congress. Father Brian has one of the uh, rare gifts of being both a brilliant scholar and researcher and teacher and somebody who can speak to a general audience, which is tremendous and and a real blessing. Um, So we want to get right into it. One of the things we love talking with folks about here at Congress is the workshops they're presenting. So you're doing two this year. Tell us about those. I'm doing two. The first one is later this afternoon. It's on the virtue of courage and the moral life. And the inspiration for that one came from a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. I know you're a Franciscan, but you know, (laughs) every once in a while the Dominicans have something good to offer. That's true. And so St. Thomas says that courage is the precondition of all virtue. And so if you don't have courage, you don't have virtue. You don't, can't live a virtuous life. So I've always been you know, struck by that in strong insistence. And yet when I dove deeper into the topic, I realized that theological ethicists haven't said a whole lot about courage. We have a lot to say about justice and faith, hope, and love, and, but we have very little about courage. And so I've gotten more and more into the topic of courage, and especially given in the state of the church right now and the state of the country right now, I think you know, a reflection on courage is really necessary and really needed. And you know, especially at a Congress like this, the LA Congress, where we, many people here are in religious formation, religious education, preparing kids for confirmation, students for confirmation, and we teach that courage is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but yet we don't really talk about what does that really mean? And, well, do, and do we really see courage as being essential to the Christian life? So th- that's one of the reasons why I've decided I'm going to break open this topic and, you know, think out loud with the people here. I love it. I love it, especially because it's, it's twofold. On the one hand, you brought up the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, it's associated with grace, right? The gift of God's self to us. Right. Part of that is courage, we believe. And, right. and we talk about that in confirmation and so forth. But also in the Thomistic sense, and here you're right, as a Franciscan, <laughs> I guess I have to just tip my capoosh, as it were, to, to Thomas for a minute, and, and say that, you know, this idea of virtues, habitus, this idea of working toward it, cultivating it, you know, taking it on as part of the formation of our whole selves, our Christian selves. I'm curious about, and maybe this is a little taste of your workshop this afternoon, what is courage as a virtue? How do we, what do we, what does that even mean? That is a really good question, and unfortunately, there's very little consensus on this. But I think that courage is related to the, the reality of fear, in that we as human beings are inherently vulnerable. And if we weren't vulnerable, we wouldn't need courage. And so courage is that ability to act in the face of fear to realize the good. It's the refusal to let fear keep us from being imprisoned from doing the good or being or, or held back from doing the good. And so for Thomas, virtue is all about the realization of good. And fear being a major obstacle, because we are human beings, we can't help but be afraid. But what do we do in the face of fear? And courage is that ability that helps us with grace and with human effort to not let fear be the obstacle to overmaster us in the pursuit of good. I'm so thankful for you to say that, and I'm, I'm thinking about this in terms of my vocation as a parent. So I've got a 10-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old son, and every day 
when we release them to school or when we, when we say goodbye to them, we have a little thing that we say to them every day. We say, be a helper, not a herder. Be a builder, not a breaker. And above all, be kind. Mm-hmm. But what I love about what you're saying is I think a lot of parents believe that they need to protect particularly their sons from vulnerability you need to toughen the little boy up mm. and and you just you just said instead that courage is an honest appraisal of your vulnerability absolutely and yes. that's so that's so refreshing to hear but how how should parents be thinking about instilling is it possible for parents to instill courage in their children and how do we do that you know one of the major lacuna in talk about courage is that there is very little consensus mm-hmm. in terms of how do we teach courage. Except that in virtue, we know that virtues are, le- are learned through practice, but they're learned through imitation and emulation. And so we learn virtue by looking at exemplars of virtue. And so one of the things I'm going to do in the workshop today is I'm going to talk about racism. And I'm going to talk about, what do you do at the Thanksgiving meal when your relatives start popping off and saying stupid stuff. And, what, and I'm going to go through a list of things in terms of we're going to say, well, that's just the way your uncle is. Or, you know, well, that was just the way they were raised. Or, you know, you can't take them seriously. Or they're really good people. And one of the things I'm going to challenge the audience with is what are your children learning when you act this way. And they're going to learn several things. They're going to learn that one, it's okay to be racist as long as you have an excuse. Or it's okay to be racist as long as only white people hear it. Or it's okay to be racist because white approval is more important than doing the right thing. And the, the fact of the matter is, kids learn from parents far more from what parents do than from what they say. So if, if I'm hearing you correctly, if I, as a parent, want to be instilling courage and virtue in my children, I need to get my own act together and make sure that I'm finding my own moments to be courageous, my own moments to model virtue. Right. And the other thing is, as you said, to model your own vulnerability. The misconception of courage is that we think that courage means the absence of fear. Whereas when I think of the times in my life when I've been summoned to be the most courageous, there have been the times I've been the most shaking inside. I mean, physically, I felt cold. I felt, you know, like I, I felt imperiled. And yet it's precisely in those moments that's when courage comes into play. And so I think one of the ways we instill virtue is not only by doing courageous things, but being upfront with our kids, too, in terms of, how afraid I am, that I'm not necessarily sure. I'm vulnerable, but yet I know this is the right thing to do, and so I'm going to do it. That's how we instill courage, I think, is by being the... It's courage of, of all the virtues has to be taught through example. We can give a whole lot of dictionary definitions of, but it's not... People act courageously because they see others acting courageously. I can pick up on that by way of example, too. I mean, since the last time we had you on the podcast, there has been a, a tremendous moment of courage. And I'm, I'm thinking as you're describing oh, those moments. Oh, I know moments, where you're going to go, yeah. yeah and yeah. If, you're, if you're okay sh- let's sharing go, a let's go, Let's go with that, yeah. Right, okay. yeah. yeah. It's out there. People may have read articles about it. And it's the fact that it's newsworthy that a priest, a theologian, a professor, but mostly this idea of, of a priest would identify himself publicly with his sexuality and say, I am a, a gay priest, I'm a gay black priest, you know, to mm-hmm. identify your social location, you know, got a lot of attention. But because 
it's not something, you know, both human sexuality more broadly, but particularly LGBT identities and, and sexual orientation within religious life, within the context of, of ministry, within uh, diocesan priesthood. People just don't talk about it one way or another. Mm-hmm. It was newsworthy. Mm-hmm. But it also must have been something, when you talk about in the face of fear, in the response of courage, I mean, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Was yeah. that one of those moments for you? Oh, yeah. Um, I was afraid you were going to talk about this, but no, I'm glad you did. Um, <laughs> I wasn't but, planning but, on it, but I, you I, talked I know, about courage well, so well. <laughs> I, I know, and, and I think maybe that's another reason why this has captured me so much, is because I've had to really do a lot of reflecting. But in, you're right, this summer I gave a, a keynote presentation to the Global Network of Rainbow Catholics. They're an international group of LGBTQ Catholic who work and minister with that community. And before I was presenting, one of the delegates, they were all invited to bring something from their countries that talk about the situation of gay, lesbian, trans persons in their country. And there was someone from the Democratic Republic of the Congo who simply brought a collage. And on this collage were the faces of people and every one of them had been arrested and beaten and tortured and raped and killed because of their sexuality, because of who they love. And there was a stunned silence in the room after this presentation. And one of the delegates from India broke the silence and said, I feel as if we're at the foot of the cross. And so then I was supposed to come on and talk. And before I did that, we had a break, and I talked to some of the delegates, and I said, I really feel inadequate. I mean, I'm supposed to talk to you as a theologian to talk about the theological mandate for LGBTQ ministry, and yet anything I have to say pales in the face of what you're saying here, what you're facing. And they said, no, we need you. We need your ministry. We need your witness because of the freedom you have in the United States. You can say and do the things that we can't say and do. And so I took that as a, a moment of conviction, of a moment of summons, and I realized I couldn't ask them to continue to be courageous if I wasn't willing to take a risk. But I have to also say that that wasn't what I was planning on doing, and in fact, I had written it in my talk, I had crossed it out of my talk, but in that moment I said, I have to step out there and take a risk. And so in the moment of giving the address, I felt very calm and secure, I sat down and I said, oh, hell, what did I just do? And since then, I mean, it's been living with that reaction that, that, as you can imagine, a statement like that began by saying, you know, I come to this conversation as a black gay priest and theologian. There's been a number of reactions to that statement, many, many, many positive, a few vitriolic comments as well. And also there's been some blowback from, and let's be honest here, from some bishops who frankly have canceled speaking engagements because one even said that I would be a negative influence on their theologians and their seminarians because being an openly gay priest somehow is a threat or a, you know, a negative influence. And so, yeah, I've been living with a lot of uncertainty But yet when I am calm and centered, there is also a deep sense of peace as well, of being a person of authenticity and integrity. 
which I think is really a problem in our church. I think that one of the reasons why we have the problem with sexual abuse and scandal in the church is because of this toxic culture of secrecy. And I think that the secrecy is doing more harm to us and keeps us from having honest conversations that are needed for the church's healing. So you're right. It's been a, it was a moment of courage, but it wasn't a moment where I felt courageous. In fact, I felt just the opposite. And even now when I'm telling this story now, it's like thinking, oh God, this is going to get out there again. And, but that's what I think courage is, though. Courage is cooperating with grace and a summons to own one's vulnerability to fear, but not to let that fear keep one from doing what you believe God is calling you to do. Uh, first of all, I just want to acknowledge, again, it's an act of trust to talk about that with us, and I'm grateful for you to do that. I also want to take a step back and ask a theoretical question. So earlier we were talking about the relationship of courage and vulnerability, but something in your statements from the Rainbow Conference really jumped out to me, this word freedom. Mm. What's the relationship between courage and freedom? Mm. That's a good question. I don't think I've, I've thought about it explicitly in that way, but I think that when we act courageously, we are paradoxically free. We're free of that fear. We're not going to let that fear hold us back. I People say, because afterwards people have said, well, you're courageous in doing that. I said, well, no, I don't, didn't feel it. I felt, I felt afraid in doing this. But since then, there is a, deep, a, a deeper sense of freedom that, you know, it's out there now. And not only that, the thought's been translated into four different, five different languages now. It's out there wow. in English, Portuguese, French, Italian, Spanish. So it's like, okay, it's out there in the world. And there is a freedom that comes with that. But there's also a cost, too. The cost is that, yes, some friends aren't friends anymore. Um, that's part of this. I mean, there are a number of my priest brothers, I was telling Dan this earlier, who they can't be associated with me too publicly because they're afraid of what people will say about them if they're seen as being associated with me. And as I said before, there are bishops that second-guess invitations have been given to me. It's a Catholic college that rescinded an invitation as well. But as I told my friends, the kinds of trials I'm going through are really nothing compared to the people in Africa and in Asia and other parts of the world where they're literally being killed and imprisoned. And yes, I have, these aren't easy things to go through, but yet in many ways, I'm also blessed as well. If I can just pick up on that, a couple things. One is... You know, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation when we were talking about what is courage, how does it operate in terms of a virtuous life? It's something you have to work at, something you have to be mindful of, something that you are taught and, yeah. and you emulate the, the good examples. And I just want to also highlight, you know, what I think, you know, it's a living example of courage for the church, particularly for clergy and religious, to own your identity and to be yourself out there in this way. And I think... It's you're living the virtue of courage, though it doesn't always, as you say, feel, you know, we have this imagination, I suppose, that, that supports a feeling of courageous activity as like, you know, I'm, I'm 
totally committed. I'm ready to go. I have no doubts, this sort of thing. But you're the Rambo Superman figure. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think cur- that's the wrong idea of totally. courage. That cur- that's physical courage, you know, the, the fleeing the face of, and going into the burning building or whatever. Moral courage is something that's very different. It, it's more hidden. It's more subtle. But yet, yeah, I think that one of the things I tr- I'm hoping that happens through all of this is to give the church— it sounds crazy to say this, a model of holiness. Exactly. And to realize that, you know, holiness comes in all kinds of different forms. And, and, and we have to be able to look in our church and realize that there are these models of holiness that come to us in ways that we haven't always appreciated in our church. And I think that's also uh, a threat for some in the church, but I also think it's a great invitation and a moment of grace for the church as well. But we'll see what happens. At this point, I think that's one of the things about courage is that it's, it's not a particular moment. It's a process because it's the moment of conscientious decision. As I was saying in my workshop, moral courage is, is that grace that translates moral conviction into moral action. And it moves us out of conviction into action. And when you do that, it's an ongoing process. It's just a moment of time. So the courageous thing, if you want to call it this, is that it wasn't just that moment back in July, but... It's the living with the consequences of that as well. And, well, and, and responding too, I mean, it's, there's something probably, there's nothing more threatening to those who are living in fear than to see a witness of courage. Because on the one hand, in, in the, you know, the really sad reality, as you named it, of your own experience of people who have known you, friends even, uh, brother priests uh, as well, and, and others who may not be antagonistic in a kind of trolling or vitriolic way, but actually in a more painful, reserved way or stepping away or, or distancing themselves, it seems to me it's a retreat into fear. And fear is what's controlling you know, that response. And we see it in so many ways. I mean, we had as well uh, on, on the podcast, you know, Father Jim Martin, who's mm. and obviously a very visible advocate on, on behalf of the LGBTQ ministry in the church, but also has become, because of his very large platform and being so well-known, a, a notable lightning rod for a lot of uh, the criticism and hatred. Absolutely. But we also see it, if I may, just to kind of touch on your other workshop, where fear is so deeply ingrained and operative and courage is lacking, particularly among some of the church's own leaders in the U.S. context we'll focus on, and this is around the issue of racism. Exactly. And, and, and I mean, do you see that playing out as well, you know? The scapegoating, the dismissiveness, the defensiveness that's associated with fear and when people don't have the courage to speak the truth. You know, we're living in a very dangerous moment in our country where racial fears and animosities have become fashionable in a way or even supported because we see it from the highest office in our land. We see our president doing this. And, we, and yet we don't find church leaders who are willing to speak that truth honestly, that we have a president who openly engages in racist rhetoric and who openly supports those who do so. We're seeing it with, with children now. We need news reports that in schools, see grade school kids telling Muslim kids that they're going to be deported or you know, telling Hispanic kids that you're gonna, the president's going to send you over the border. Because this is, again, as courage is learned, the opposite, intolerance, is also learned. And the other thing I think, uh, one of the reasons I'm so you know, concerned about our church is that when bishops 
and priests and other leaders are silent over this, they are modeling behavior. They're modeling uncourageous behavior. And they're also teaching that that uncourageous behavior, that cowardice, is indeed a Christian way of being. Yeah. And that is just the opposite of what I think Jesus is all about. One part of the workshop is about Jesus as a model of courage. And we also look at Jesus, and we usually think about Jesus on the cross, and that's his model. No, we're thinking about Jesus and his ministry to the outsider, and his ministry to women, and his treating women as equals, and his curing on the Sabbath. I mean, these are all the courageous acts of Jesus. And so Jesus is just the opposite of keeping one's keeping silent in the face of injustice and human need. It's so, you know, you've got me thinking too about, you know, we were talking about sort of this kind of machoism and this sort of false sense of courage as it's oftentimes depicted and understood. And, and, you know, the narrow focus, I never made this association before until just now as you're talking about it, that what's so courageous is the Mel Gibson Jesus, Mm. that what's so courageous is he endured all this physical suffering in this kind of Rambo-like way, when in fact what you're saying is that the real courage... The real response to fear is what gets him to be nailed to the cross. Exactly. He was courageous all along. I think it's wrong to just look at that last, that that Calvary was the culmination. No, he's been courageous all throughout his life, and this is the price of courage. So what I'm hearing you saying is that we should be looking not only at Calvary, but at Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. Yes, and I think that Gethsemane, as we're talking, I'm just thinking about this, that Gethsemane uh, event is probably a prayer that he had to pray many times throughout his life. That, you know, there are many times he's had to reaffirm this. He's saying, you know, I don't really want to do this. I would rather not do this, but I'm going to be faithful to your will. And courage is that grace that kept him faithful to God's will at many different points in his life. Because one of the things we're very clear from the Gospels is that he endured opposition throughout his ministry. And so, you know, it's wrong to just look at that one moment we're going to be crucified with Jesus. No, there have been, Jesus has been faithful and courageous throughout his life and had to pray for that grace of being faithful despite his fear. Well, what I also love about that, too, is it's from the very beginning, right? You know, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and when he's preaching in Luke's gospel, you know, as Luke relays this, his family and his neighbors are like, who the hell is this guy? Who does he think he is? Isn't right. he Joseph's son? You know, and they run, and run him off the cliff. Right. And so I think that's a really important thing for all of us as people who dare to call ourselves Christians, dare to claim to follow in the footprints of the Lord, that this is, you know, what else do we expect? It should come to us as well. And I'm also mindful in the spirit of the conversation about Gethsemane, and that is kind of a paradigmatic illustration of what Jesus must have experienced over and over and over again. It reminds me, it brings us back to your own experience as you described what has been rightly named a courageous moment of coming out in this, in this context, moved by the experiences of our sisters and brothers around the globe, that you said, you know, I could almost picture you in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, like, this is not what I wanted. You know, I didn't ask for this. This was not what I planned, no. Oh. Um, but I think that's where the moment of courage comes in. I don't think most of us set out to be courageous. It's something that we've been practicing throughout our lives so that when the moment comes, then we can answer the grace, then we can answer the call that's there. Well, Father Brian Massengale, as always, it's such a treat to have you on the podcast. This is, uh, I hope this is not the last time. Uh, we'll make it a tr- an annual tradition. It's, uh, thank you for, for everything you do and uh, wish you all the best with your workshops this weekend at Congress and, uh, and a great rest of, rest of the semester. Okay. Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you both. It's been great to be, great to be with you guys. Thank you. Hey, this is David. We're back in Chicago now. And I just want to say how grateful I am to all of our supporters who have helped to make this financially possible for us to do this kind of work on location, but also to all the people that came up to us and told us how much they liked the show. It really means a lot to us that this means a lot to you. And the fact that you're willing to seek us out and tell us that is a tremendous blessing. So we had a great time. We're excited to go back next year. But for right now, please know that you're in our prayers. Please keep us in your prayers. And we'll be back with you in another couple of weeks. Thank you again for listening.